burden that I feel tonight has to do with a deep-seated mentality, habitual mindset that we can have that, if not exposed and rooted out, can rob us of the promises of God and cause us to be defeated even when we had everything going for us. And to become more specific, I think that sometimes I consider my situation, my, my ministry, my family, and I consider the new churches around the world that I carry a burden for, and I consider our group fellowship and all of us, and I compare what I see in my own life and in the lives of those around me, I compare it to the pattern that I perceive in the men and women of God whose fruit I would like to emulate. And when I see a discrepancy, it catches my attention. When I see that there is a certain pattern put forth by the founders of this fellowship, the old guard, if you will, and then I see a different pattern at work, either in my own life or those I love, it gets my attention. And I think of that passage we've quoted often in Philippians 3 where Paul says, not that I have already attained, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, I press and I strain toward what is ahead. And then he immediately says, you have us as a pattern. And that word is diecast. It's pretty solid pattern. It's not a suggestion. It's a pattern. And he was unashamed, unashamed in his, in his presentation of, he said us, but he included himself, a collective group of godly people in that day. He was unashamed in his presentation of themselves as a pattern. Amen. Does that mean Paul was perfect? No, he just said in the previous two verses, I have not already attained. But the pattern was right, even though some of the, the, the adherence to the pattern is no doubt imperfect. And that's what we want to find. We want to find the pattern of God for our lives. We want to find the right pattern. We're not going to ever be perfect in implementing those patterns. We're going to make mistakes, but we want to have the right pattern. And I see that people find their path in God, find God's victory in two basic ways. Either they have the correct pattern given from God and they walk in that, or they don't and God supernaturally intervenes. Cataclysmic intervention. Amen? And we thank God for every time He intervenes. But it would be a mistake to pretend like we could adopt the wrong pattern and just count on the fact that God was going to swoop in and save the day every time we'd made a mess of it. And I'm, my burden is for everybody in this room, myself included, but I'm specifically thinking of parents. I know what it's like 
Not that any in this room would ever do such a thing, but I know what it's like for parents to kind of lean back and have a lackadaisical attitude because they know that their children are going to get influenced by the youth ministry. They're going to go to a powerful meeting on this night or that morning and so on and so forth. And we thank God for that. Amen? But that's not what we, that's not how we should set our compass and determine our course. God has a pattern. He has a mold that he wants us to be conformed to. As surely as Paul said in verse 12, chapter 12 of Romans, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In the same way, he wants us to be conformed, formed by the image of God's Son. That's our pattern. My dad has said recently that for all history, mankind has been in search of the perfect man, the ideal man. And they have put forth all manner of things. He pointed out that at times they put forth the warrior. They put forth philosopher kings from the Greeks. They put forth the English gentleman. They put forth the, the, the southern uh, gentleman. They put forth all manner of things. They put forth the scientist. They put forth the athlete. But there's only one who is the image of the invisible God. There's only one who is the outshining of his very essence, the exact representation of his being, and that's Jesus. No one has seen God at any time, but all the goodness of God, all the power of God, all the deity of God dwelt in Jesus in bodily form. Colossians 1.19 and 2.9 tell us. Amen. So he is the perfect man, and he's the only one that we should accept as the pattern. But we follow others as they follow Christ. Amen? So there's one pattern that I see that plays havoc with the transformation, the conformation to the image of Christ. How do I describe it? Is it indifference? That's part of it. Is it a lackadaisical attitude? That's part of it. It's hard to describe it in, in positive terms because really it's a negative. It's a lack of seriousness about seemingly minor issues. Can you think about that for a minute? If I were to compare... The pattern I see among those whose fruit I would like to emulate against those who, whose fruit I do not want to reproduce, on the one hand, I see a certain seriousness. And on the other hand, I see a certain disengagement or indifference. And that's the pattern, that's the contrast that I want to talk about tonight. Which one is the pattern of God? You know what I'm thinking. But this relates to how we raise our children. This relates to how we deal with our own, mis our own failures and shortcomings. This pertains to how we think about and respond to sin in our lives, in the lives of those we love, in the body of Christ as a whole. If I were to think about families people I dearly love and I greatly respect. They have the gifts. The parents have a desire to do God's will. 
They're even marked by an attitude of humility and readiness to hear. But if I look at their children and if they and I both agree that the fruit is not what it should be, I look for a root cause. And I say, why is that? Why is it that bad fruit keeps springing up over and over and over again? And what I find is that the father has a different response and attitude toward the problems in his family than, say, the other brothers and sisters or members of the community might have. He just can't be too disturbed. I've just never seen him zealous on fire. There's this wet blanket effect and everything is taken in stride and with a smile on your face and a happy voice. And, and I say, well, now that's a pattern. That's a really clear, recognizable, identifiable pattern that I see all over Christianity. Is it the pattern of Christ? Is it the pattern of God? The change begins in your heart and mind before it ever becomes visible in the fruits and lives of your children. You must believe that the change must come. And then you must believe that the change will come. Because it is impossible to please God without that faith. Those who come to God must believe that he is and that he helps out those who really, really work to find him. My paraphrase, but you know what I'm quoting. They that come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who do diligently seek him. So you have got to change your attitude toward this. You've got to believe that it's a necessity because if it's not a necessity, it's not a possibility. And you must believe that it is a possibility. Because if you don't believe it, you know what? It's not a possibility. If you go to try to make the change and you don't believe God can make that change through you, it's impossible. If you believe it's impossible, then it's impossible. But if God spoke and told you to do it, He upholds all things by the word of his power, including your shaking knees and your feeble hands. He's going to make straight paths for your feet. You can surely do it. When God set out to revolutionize the world, the birth of monotheism, the greatest revolution in human thinking, when God set out to revolutionize the world, when he set out to impact the lives of all the families of the earth. Did he go on a television network? Did he make a blog post? Did he have a rally or a crusade? No. He called one man out. And he called his wife out of the culture that was incompatible with the revolution and he taught one man how to be a daddy and it took him a hundred years to figure it out and he taught one woman how to be a mom 
They had a child, and that's how God launched the greatest revolution mankind would ever know. That brings home to us the importance that God places on the family. In you, he tells Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Let me teach you how to be a dad. And if it takes a long time, that's fine. God's got patience. He's got time. It's going to, do, it's going to take whatever it takes, but we're going to make a family here because I want to change the world. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. And you know the passage we often refer to. He says, Abraham, have I known, Genesis 19, that he might command his children after him in righteousness. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. It took a while for that seed to to sprout and that sprout to become a tree and that tree to be covered in fruit and that fruit to reach over the wall and impact the lives of us Gentiles, but in due season, it all came together according to God's perfect plan, didn't it? Jesus didn't ride out of the clouds on a white horse with a flaming sword. He was born as a baby to parents, and he was in subjection to them in all things. God loves families. God loves families. God has more, God puts more stock in what can be done to change the world through families than all the crusades, all the programs, all the plans, all the flash and glitter and TV programs and internet. and It doesn't have any comparison in the mind of God to the power of a real dad raising his son in a godly manner and a real mom doing the same. So I'm saying that the problem is people are too lackadaisical. Why are they lackadaisical? Well, because they don't recognize the positive. They don't recognize that they may be raising someone who has far greater impact through his godly character than they would have the capacity to anticipate. That's on the positive side, right? You can say, you may not know that you're raising a Moses. You may not know that you're raising an Elijah. You may not know that you're raising Isaiah. You're just raising him according to God's pattern. And the Lord is going to do the rest. But he relies on you. You may not know that you're raising a Timothy. You may not know that you're raising Messiah. In the case of Jesus' parents, all of us know that we're not. We didn't even have to be told that, in fact. So there's the positive. But there's another reason why we would have a spirit of indifference that would render us ineffectual. What is that? One is we don't recognize the positive potential. What is the other reason? It's the flip side. We don't believe in the power of sin. We don't really get it. We don't believe that we are engaged in a spiritual warfare. And that the powers of evil are greater than the feeble strength of a man's will. And so our efforts are floppy. They're halfway. They're haphazard. They're inconsistent. 
because we don't identify this deadly disease of conceit and root it out with all zeal, fervor, love, commitment. I think this is the biggest reason. People don't want to overreact. Well, none of us do, do we? But I don't see a whole lot of people overreacting. I see people underreacting. They are not impacted by dangerous sin in its infant stages. They do not have a sufficient experience of the power of evil to recognize dangerous sin in its infant stages. There are places throughout the Bible where you could say that God overreacted. Or maybe he was recognizing dangerous sin in its infant stages. When the Lord sent an angel to drive man out of the Garden of Eden, out of his presence and the paradise of God, because they ate from an apple, was that overreaction? Or was that recognition of dangerous sin in its infant stages? What about the life of the righteous man Moses? One of the most formative characters in human history. He's on his way to set the people free from Egypt. And all of a sudden it says that the Lord God stood before his children and was about to kill Moses. The angel of the Lord, the Elohim of of Almighty, was about to kill Moses. Because the Lord had said, this is my covenant This is my pattern. Every male amongst you must be circumcised in the foreskin of his flesh. And whosoever is not, he shall be put out from amongst his people. He has broken my covenant. Now we know that Moses married a Cushite. He married someone from a different culture. Someone who was willing to learn. Someone who had a good heart. Whose family had great gifts. Someone whose family was going to be instrumental in in blessing God's people in the future. And Jethro, you know what I'm talking about? But she didn't like this painful imposition on her sweet little boys. And so she refused to do it. She did not recognize that the favor of God was not scattered indiscriminately, but that it was channeled into the confines of a covenant. And that if you broke the terms of that covenant, you escaped the covering, protection, and grace of God. And I want to ask you, was God overreacting? Would anybody like to be the Lord's judge tonight? Was God overreacting? What about Simpler examples, like when Saul violated the commands, as king of Israel, he violated the commands of the prophet in his life. The man who represented the authority of the spirit, of the truth. Not the political authority over Saul. Saul had no authority figure over him in the realm of politics, but in the realm 
of his walk with God, there was a prophet, an old man named Samuel. Samuel told Saul, he said, wait to make the sacrifice until I come. Saul was chosen by God, amen? Anointed by the Lord, right? He had a new heart. He had all this going for him. And he couldn't wait for Samuel. Samuel was late, and so Saul went ahead and offered the sacrifice. And the Lord said, that's okay, I understand. Things happen. Is that what the Lord said? No, the Lord spoke through Samuel and said, when you were small in your own eyes, did I not make you king over all of Israel? But see, now the kingdom has been stolen from you, has been ripped from your grasp, and shall be given to another. It was final. Was God overreacting? Let's fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus is talking to his disciples and telling them that he's going to die. It's a hard thing to hear. This God of all power, this Messiah, this miracle worker, is telling them that he's going to go ahead and submit to the unjust death on the cross at the hands of evil men. And Peter pipes up and says, takes the Lord aside and he says, Lord, this will not be. We will not let this happen. And Jesus puts his arm around Peter and said, I knew I could count on you. Thanks, buddy. Or maybe he said, thanks. That's a great, that's a great sentiment, Peter. I love you too, but I think I'm going to go ahead and have it God's way this time. How did he respond to Peter? He said, get thou behind me, Satan, because you savor the things that be of man instead of the things of God. Was Jesus overreacting? They were identifying great and powerful, dangerous, destructive sins in their infant stages. When the Apostle Paul was with Peter in Galatia, and Peter tried to act like he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles, a, a relatively minor transgression. Did Paul take him aside and whisper in his ear? Or did he rebuke him in front of the whole church and call him the man with the keys to the kingdom? Did he call him a hypocrite? Jesus called him a Satan. Peter called him, Paul called him a hypocrite. Was Paul overreacting? Hmm? What about when the man asked Paul, I want this power that you have when you lay hands on people and they receive the Spirit. I'll, I'll give you money if you'll give it to me. And he spun around and said, your money perish with you, you child of the devil. You will be blind for a season. I perceive that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bonds of iniquity. Was, was he overreacting? Was the apostle overreacting? You see, what we fail to realize is the chronology of sin. We can see the end product and say, I don't want my son to be that. We can see the end product and say, I don't want to be that. And that's good and helpful. We need to see a lot of that. But we are incapable of seeing it in its seedling stages. We are incapable of recognizing it when it is still small. We don't recognize that sin has a life of its own. It grows without water. It grows without weeding. 
It grows if you don't do anything. Just leave it alone and it will take over. We don't recognize the chronology of sin. And if we did, we would employ whatever measures were necessary to prevent that sin from having its way in the life of my loved one or in my own soul. What am I saying? If you knew that your child was doing something deadly, what would you be willing to do to stop it? If you knew your, your child was fixing to wander out in front of the bus, what would you do to stop it? And those who are loving parents will say in their hearts, anything. I would do absolutely anything. I would kill myself to stop it. But you don't see the character traits of rebellion that are leading that child out in front of a bus that will crush him for all time and eternity. If you knew that your child was tampering with Ebola, you would move heaven and earth to prevent it from happening. You would lose all those fancy images of nice guy, of really terrific parent, all those phony, fake images that we have been taught are Christian. We're supposed to be loving. We're supposed to be patient. We're supposed to be gentle. And what do we know of these things? We know them in the Bible, in the man Paul, in the man Peter, in the man Jesus. That's our pattern. This really terrific parent who comes in and says, Now, sonny boy, now dear Charles, mommy would like you to do such and such. And her words are asking something of him, but her tone says, you know, if it's all the same to you, what would that same mother do if she saw Johnny tumbling toward the brink of the Grand Canyon? What would happen to that nice image of the really terrific parent? It'd go out the window. And she would have an appropriate urgency and communicate an appropriate clarity and firmness to Johnny. She wouldn't want to scare him off the edge, but there would be an authority in her voice. There would be feeling conveyed in her voice. Those who, who work to suppress all emotion from correction, well, that's like being corrected by an automaton, by a computer. That is not an achievement. Amen. That is to make your child hate you. But if there's passion, then they say, Whew, this means something to dad. Son, don't do that. Ooh, I can feel this, this is something that comes from dad's heart, not just his head and his mouth. What does the Bible teach us about the chronology of sin? That it begins with a thought and it ends in death. James 1 and 15 says, Lust or desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You see, 
if you saw sin full grown, you'd know how to deal with it. But you don't recognize sin in its infant stages. When it's full growth, it's not going to give birth to a change. It's not going to give birth to an alteration of course. It's going to give birth to death. But many parents only really become engaged when it's too late. They only really find their convictions and make their stand when it's too late. But if they could recognize it when it's just a desire, if they could recognize it in its little fumbling baby steps, then they could nip it in the bud, to use a cliche. They could respond to it with a word instead of waiting for circumstance to bludgeon it with tragedy. There's a chronology to sin, a thought, a desire, and then a gestation period and a birth. Sin, a transgression, and then an addiction. And when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. If you can repent of it when it's a desire, in your own heart, if you can deal with it when it's a desire, it's going to be so much easier than trying to undo it or put it to death when it's full grown. Solomon, in his parable, says, Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyard. Our vineyards, they are in bloom. Thank you, Jesus. Catch for us the foxes, the foxes that ruin the vineyard. Our vineyards that are in bloom. I look at families, and their families are in bloom. Those children have potential. Those children have promise. They have beauty and life and strength and joy. Nothing is more pleasant. Nothing is more rewarding. I, I love my children. But could some parents please go out and catch the foxes? The foxes that are in your vineyard? Could you change your attitude toward the things your children are dabbling in? You don't want to be weird. But you know what I don't want even more than that? I don't want to be responsible for doing nothing when I saw my child choosing the path to destruction. You don't want to be unlike everybody else. I'm so thankful that my parents, when it was not even legal, made up their minds to homeschool their children. If they were trying to get us out of the public school system now, do you think we would have this community? If they had waited 30 years, 40 years to bring their children out of the public school system, do you think we would have this community? you got to move when the Lord says move, and you got to act like the little foxes can ruin the entire vineyard. You've got to recognize sin in its infant stages and do whatever it takes to get it out of God's garden. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in the first epistle. And apparently they had somebody in their midst who was behaving untowardly. And apparently they were boasting about their tolerance toward this 
rebellious, sinning man. This sounds like the evangelical church today more than anything. They're so proud of themselves for giving sin a place to grow. They're so proud of themselves for the cross-pollination of sin. We are not supposed to hate the sinner. We are supposed to love the sinner so much that we would bring him the painful words that would set him free from the suction and pull of death. We hate the sin that would destroy the joy and life of the sinner. Paul wrote this church and apparently they had been boasting that they had enough room in their eclectic hearts to tolerate God's will and the devil's. And so he wrote them and he rebuked them. He said, your boasting is not good. I see parents who have the same mindset. They can walk through Walmart and their child is throwing a temper fit and punching them in the face and that plastic smile never leaves them. They are the really terrific parent. And they have so much wherein to boast because look at how Johnny is such a little devil and yet I don't mind. I don't mind how he's torturing you either, ruining your day either because I'm a terrific parent and I think you should share, share my terrific tolerance with me. If he walks into the bathroom while you're in there, that's okay. Johnny's a terrific child and we're all really terrific adults and we don't recognize that we're teaching this child he has no boundaries. And a person who has no boundaries falls off of precipices, tumbles into the abyss. And that really terrific parent is going to have to live with that someday. Just like the mother of Ted Bundy, the serial killer, I will always love my sweet Ted. Well, he needed some other kind of love than what you gave him, I believe. So he says to this church, Paul does, your boasting is not good. What a simple statement. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He said, Jesus paid the, old pri the ultimate price. So you pay the price to get the leaven out of your life, out of your family, out of your church. Whatever it takes. Solomon also said, as dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. You can have wisdom and honor. You can have the Holy Spirit. You can have the reign of Christ. But if you don't have a serious enough attitude toward a little folly, that little folly is going to outshine all the glory of God in your family, in your life. Can I read it to you again in case you think I'm making that up? Ecclesiastes 10 and 1, as dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Have you ever talked with a man of God or someone who thought they were, and the, old, the entire time you're conversing with them, their children are jumping on the backs of the couches and 
behaving like imbeciles and can't tell whether they came from monkeys or Adam and just all over the place and he's kind of shouting above it and everybody's a little bit tense and this is something that has to change because his wisdom and honor are outshined. They're completely obscured by the prominence of a little folly. And some have a whole lot more than a little. So to the indifferent, Solomon also writes, How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. Now we are thinking of this in spiritual terms. What does it take to be outdone, to be robbed and vanquished of everything we have in God? Nothing. It takes nothing. It takes indifference. It takes inaction. It takes the grievous sin of omission, just doing nothing. What did the 17th century English gentlemen say? All that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. All that is necessary for families to fail is for good parents to become lackadaisical. And to say to themselves, that doesn't bother me. The question is, does it bother God? Does it bother God's order? God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Everything should be done in a fitting and an orderly way. Does it bother him? Does it bother his Holy Spirit? Does a little folly outweigh all the honor and wisdom in the room? Well, then it must be dealt with as the grievous sin that it really is. The sin is not on the part of the child. They're innocent. The sin is on the part of the parents who refuse to train that child. You think about it, it's pretty scary. The Bible tells us of a chronology of failed parenting. Eli failed with his children, and it cost Israel the glory of God. Sad thing is, Samuel failed with his children, and there was no prophet to succeed him. Sadder thing is, David failed with his children. Failure, 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 failure. Find someone who has a calling in God. Find someone who has an anointing on their life. Find someone the Lord has called to the ministry and the devil just needs to put in a little folly and it will outweigh all their wisdom and honor. It will undercut and undermine everything they claim. Just a little folly. We've got to take it seriously. Amen. When you see that rebellion start coming on your child, how does the Bible look at that rebellion? Oh, kids will be kids. Well, that's not how he looks at it. That's not how the Lord looks at it. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness like divination. The Lord looks at it like witchcraft. If the rebellion is in my own heart, as it was in Saul's heart toward Samuel, if rebellion is in my spouse's heart toward God, toward toward me, toward someone in the body, if rebellion is in my children's heart, how am I supposed to look at rebellion? 
Well, what would I think? What would I do if I walked walked in and someone was practicing black magic and witchcraft? What would I do? I would become very alarmed. And the Bible is saying that rebellion is just as powerful an influence, just as powerful a tool of the devil in your family as if someone brought in black magic and witchcraft. Oh, but kids will be kids. No. Even a child is known by his actions, by whether his conduct is pure and right. That means his parents can help him get there. They're going to make their own choices. But in your house, you can stand up for the honor of God. Young people, you have a choice. You have a choice in your own soul of how you're going to respond to sin. You say, Ossie, you've been reading a lot from the Old Testament. But when Jesus talked, it was so much sweeter. Could you please turn to Jesus? Yes. Mark 9, verse 43. If your right eye causes you to sin, well, don't mind. We all make mistakes. And if your right hand causes you to sin, swat it with the left hand and move on. And if your right foot causes you to sin, well, pretend that it didn't. Don't let anybody see you stumble. Because, after all, failure to remove sin... It doesn't end in a place where their worm dieth not and their fire is not quenched. We're all covered. We're all safe. We're all good. So just take it easy and enjoy the ride. Did Jesus preach that we should have a radical response to transgression? Did he preach that we should have a flippant, shoulder-shrugging indifference towards sin? Or that we should be alarmed and employ radical measures to deal with it. Do you think that Jesus was actually suggesting that people mutilate their bodies? I don't think so because none of his followers, there's no evidence that any of his followers ever did that. And John said, if anyone says he's without sin, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. Okay? So what was Jesus' message? Why did he tell them it was okay to lose their right eye, okay to lose their right hand, okay to lose their right leg? Because, hey, after all, it's better to get to heaven maimed than to hell whole. I think what he was trying to say is that when you've got a problem, you've got to do whatever it takes to overcome it. And sometimes whatever it takes, it may change the way you look. It may change the way you see things. People may notice that you're missing something. It may be a little bit of a stigma to amputate the sin from your life. But it's better to make it to heaven with that stigma of a wounded overcomer than to make it to hell having kept it all intact but eaten out from the inside. His message is do whatever it takes. The least that it takes and the most that it takes. But whatever it takes. 
You got an attitude that you're battling, an attitude of bitterness, an attitude of discontent. Do you know that attitude might just be a conception? But that conception is undergoing a gestation for as long as you let it linger around in the back of your mind. It's gestating. And one of these days, it's going to come ripping out into the world as a full-born sin. And if you don't stop it at one of these painful steps along the way, in the end, it's going to bring forth death in your life. Deuteronomy 32, they are a nation without sense. There is no discernment in them. If only they were wise and would understand this and discern what their end is going to be. How could one man chase a thousand or two men put a thousand to flight unless their rock had abandoned them, unless God had given them up? He's saying there are people in Moses' day. And he says these people are senseless. They do not understand the course that they're on. He said if, if there are a thousand Christians who are being conquered by one man or two thousand Christians overcome by two men, the only way that can happen is if they don't have God on their side. He's saying face the music. Face the facts. If you try and you're not succeeding, you can have more of God in your life, but you need to get it. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So if you find that greater is he that is in the world than he that is in you, you don't have him in you. That's what Paul was trying to say in Romans 8. Do you remember what he said? What did he say? If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive for righteousness. But if any man hath not the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Amen. It's either a reality or not. That's what Paul was saying also when he said, test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. And that's what Moses is saying. How could one man chase a thousand Christians or two put two, two thousand, ten thousand to flight unless their rock had given them up? You need to rewind and repent. You need to get right with God. You need to go back to the beginning. Amen. You don't need to just keep skimming along, acting like everything is okay. You can still turn this around. Because if God is on your side, if God before you, who can be against you? For who can stand against the Lord? If you're trying and failing in your family, then get God's pattern on your side. Who can be against you? Who can stand against the Lord? If you're trying and failing in your personal life, then get back to the rock. Because who can stand against the Lord if only you'll get on his side? Amen. How many of you know what myopia is? Or myopic? Nearsighted. Have you ever heard someone say he's just myopic? Hmm? Your dictionary will say it means lacking imagination, foresight, or intelligent insight. Myopic. But it literally comes from myopia. It means to not have a vision, to not have 
sight in the distance. Remember what Peter said? If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted unto blindness and has forgotten what he has been cleansed from in his past sins. So he says, if you're moving in the grace of God in increasing measure, you're not going to be ineffectual. But if you're ineffectual, it's because you've forgotten the sin that you once were in. You've forgotten its power. You have become nearsighted. You don't realize that the sin of today turns into the death of tomorrow. You don't realize that lust, when it is conceived, brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. You have failed to recognize the chronology of sin. God, help us to overcome our myopia, our myopic mindsets that fail to recognize these dynamics, these terrible sins in their infant stages. The Bible tells us of the chronology of sin. Amen. But it also tells us of the chronology of faith and righteousness. It is from faith to faith. Amen. That the righteousness of God is being revealed. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. It also tells us of the chronology of the kingdom of God and its power. It is like a man who buried a seed in a field. And it grew and it became the greatest in the garden. God, help us to become alert. Help us to wake up. Help us to recognize dangerous sin in its infant stages. Help us to take whatever measures, however drastic they may be, to change our lives. And in changing our lives, to change the lives of our families. And in changing the lives of our families to change the world. He's still wanting a revolution to sweep through. He's still wanting to bless all the families of the earth. What does he say? When they see your children, the work of my hands, then they will glorify the God of Israel.